Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats. I'm Greg Dalton. In the last 20 years, while the percentage of Democratic voters in favor of immediate action on climate has risen, the level of Republican support has sunk or stalled. But if you broaden your language and talk about should we be transitioning to cleaner energy, should we be taking some sorts of actions, then you get far more Republicans, especially Republican women, especially younger Republicans, who say, yes, yes, we ought to be doing something. Lori Weigel is a Republican pollster. Her data has shown that GOP voters, especially in Western states, are skeptical of the current administration's environmental policies. In fact, they support a variety of solutions to promote conservation and clean energy. This is the thing that we have tried to uh, get across in our coverage. Marianne Lavelle is a reporter for Inside Climate News based in Washington, D.C. For so many years, the discussion was stuck on is climate change happening or not? And a debate on solutions is a position that we haven't been in before. We'll hear more from her and Lori Weigel later in the program. First, a conversation with political analyst and former presidential advisor David Gergen, who served in the administrations of Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Ronald Reagan, and Bill Clinton. I asked him what changes he's seen in the politics around climate following the 2018 midterm election. Well, I think it has. the politics have changed dramatically. If you look at both parties, uh, they have not taken, in the presidential elections in the past, they have not taken climate as seriously as they might, to our, I think, everybody's surprise. As I recall in the debates of 2016 with Hillary and Trump, I'm not sure that anybody ever asked them a climate question. And think of that, there were like three debates and nobody asked the question. And now it's, it's, it's not always on the top of mind, but it's certainly mostly on the top of mind for Americans. I think that's uh, in significant part because of the storms and the fires and, the, and what people have seen. And almost every American now has a friend who's been affected. So it's on the agenda. You know, some people might say also it's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who's, who has been a vehicle for that. Um, how do you see this playing out from now? Um, Democrats don't really agree on, on how ambitious to be, and you know what's the Republican alternative? Well, I, it, it seems to me Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, has really has great heightened interest and heightened focus on climate, and you have to give her credit for that. Um, I do think there's a danger for the Democratic Party if it embraces uh, the the entire Green New Deal. Uh, in all of its uh, glory, <laughs> because they, no one's expensed this out. But the numbers that are floating around are just beyond you know belief in terms of how expensive it would all be. It, because it's about much more than climate. It's also about transforming our society and the equity and, and dealing with the inequities in our society, all of which is to be uh, appreciated. But if you adopt that as your platform as opposed to your aspirations, you then have to tell people how you're going to pay for it. And that is so mind-blowing. I, th I think the Democratic Party has been wise. I think Nancy Pelosi has been wise uh, to focus on the climate aspects of the plan and not on the other, to, to put the, uh, the rest of it uh, into a secondary category or on the back burner, as they sometimes say in politics, but to focus on you know what we need to do by 2025. Or, it, or within a 20-year period, whether we can get back into Paris and whether we can look at something like the Baker-Schultz plan. You know, there are other 
alternatives now, which I think need to be on the public uh, uh, agenda uh, to debate. Some people, environmental justice advocates, would say, that, hear that and say, oh, you're asking for us to, to wait again, as we so often do, while the affluent people, coastal people, solve their concerns and the, the people of color have to take a back seat again. And I think she, she, she might, some environmental justice advocates I've interviewed would say, well, we, we're, I, we're not going to take a back seat in the green economy like we did in the brown economy. Listen, I, I, with all due respect, uh, I, I don't think people who are living in California who got chased out of their homes, many of whom died, were elites. Um, mm-hmm. The people in Iowa who are farming and uh, along the Missouri River where the, you know, where the, the, the walls are crumbling and the water is, you know, is flooding the uh, states, these are not uh, you know, elites. I don't think the question is the elites versus everybody else. The question is, what can we do rapidly that would alleviate this and be fair to all? Uh, and, and obviously, that includes people who are living in, in urban areas that are, you know, like a Flint, Michigan. Um, and we have to deal with that as well. But you, you have to be realistic about how you're going to pay for things. Uh, and if the costs are anywhere, if you want to do Medicare for all, you want to have free college for everybody, and you want to do all these climate uh, issues, if you if you don't have priorities, you find you got nothing done. You know, let's take it one step at a time and get it done. We've been arguing and arguing. Everybody knows now we need to, you know, that the Republicans have been you know, hopelessly uh, dismissive of science. Um, but we we need a we need the country to come together and do some serious things in the next four years, or it's going to be too late. Right, and that's where the urgency comes in. Scientists absolutely say, right. Do something. So you're for fast rather than something more ambitious. I'm, fa- I'm, I'm for fast on climate. I'm for doing the rest when you can, as soon as you can. But I am not for trying to do it all because what I, what we've seen in the past is eventually proposals like that, which seem like they're they're, they're wonderful aspirations, but they turn out to be pie in the sky. Nothing gets done. And we're, we're better off getting some really, you know, let's get 30% of it. Let's get 40%. Let's get back into Paris at the minimum. Where is that? We saw a, a pretty big deal recently, so the Dingle Bill, a million new acres of land conservation. Republicans, Democrats came together yes. around land conservation to yes. permanently fund some things. So I it, think it's easier to do land conservation. And, uh, you know, but, but the carbon is where we have to go. Um, I, I think the Baker-Schultz plan, uh, which is a carbon tax, um, with the tax money that comes in, the revenue that comes in being sent back to uh, middle-income families or low-income families. Uh, that got quite, when they originally polled that back in late 2018, uh, that was polled very, very well and you know, well over 60% support. Uh, and what I liked about it is it's, it is a plan which actually does better than Paris, according to the surveys or the uh, research on it, and 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 yet it's fair to people. It does, it's not a regressive tax, but you return the, you know return a lot of the revenue uh, in a, in a fair way. You don't uh, grow government, and, and you don't grow government. And very importantly, it comes from two of the major domos of the Republican Party. Are they more moderate than the, where the mainstream of the party is? Yes, they are. But if you can get the Bakers and Schultzes of the world, who are so respected by especially by Republicans, but more generally speaking. Uh, behind something, you've got a chance of putting something together that's bipartisan. So the last thing we need is another fight that leads to a big environmental bill 
that the minority won't vote for, and it's only voted for by the majority. And then the, the minority spends the next five years trying to undo it, which is what we've seen in Obamacare. We, we should not go down that path again. We, ought to, we need something with more of a consensus behind it. So some combination of the Green New Deal and the Baker-Schultz plan, something? Yeah, is something, you're certainly, certainly green. Um, I, I'm not quite sure the New Deal part. That's what I'm questioning. Uh, because I think it's, you know, these are aspirationally t- terrific, but it, 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 if the planet is, is sort of burning up, and listen, this is an international concern now. It's, it, it has risen not just in the U.S., but it's, and, and we are seen by the rest of the world increasingly as holding things up. Um, but uh, I, I was in Davos in Switzerland this, this January for the World Economic Forum. They take an annual survey. It's, it's CEOs from all over the world. A lot, of, a lot of heavyweights come there. And they take a survey about what are your biggest concerns. For four years in a row, it has been the climate. Number one concern of CEOs and others around the world. And very importantly, if you looked at the top five concerns of, of people in Davos this year, four of them were about climate and the environment. Water. So this is a deep-seated response to a, uh, an accumulating problem. I tell you what I'm looking forward to. Uh, the, the Netflix has got a big series coming out on our, called Our Planet uh, mm-hmm. with uh, David Attenborough. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And it, I, it's, he's splendid. He's like a 92 He was a long-time climate skeptic, and he yes, came he, around. He's come around, and he's and he, he has some—they uh, they were up in helicopter, and I think it was in Greenland— um, looking at the glaciers, and, and about two miles away, they started to saw a glacier that started crumbling. They flew the helicopter over to the top of that, and these pictures are unbelievable. It's like the end of the world that you're watching as these glaciers, ten, ten stories more and more, are just collapsing right in front of you. Just a fury, and it, I, I haven't seen anything, even what Al Gore produced. I, I haven't seen anything which was as both as spellbinding and as scary. But glaciers, for most Americans, they'll never go there. They're beautiful, but they're far away. Yeah. The problem with the climate issue is it hasn't connected, this has been as human or direct as my health care, my family who member who wants to get across a border, uh, gun violence, those sorts of things. It's, it's viewed as less personal, more remote. It, it, it is, but I, I think the storms and the fires are changing that, the uncertainty of the weather. This is turning out exactly the way scientists predicted some years ago, with one exception, that is, it's happening faster than they thought, uh, and it's it's for that reason it's more frightening. And you know, we it, when historians look back, if we're not careful, the Trump saga is going to be like a little footnote, and and the big story is going to be where in the hell were you people when the world was you know, threatened that way. John McCain uh, had basically the same climate proposal as Barack Obama, 2008. Yep. He was a leader in the Senate and held the Senate back for, for, uh, to vote on climate one summer, 2005. Who are the leaders now on climate in the Republican Party? Because with all due respect to George Shultz and Jim Baker, I they're agree. elders that the people in office don't necessarily uh, I, listen to. I, t- I totally agree with that. And, you know, I, I felt like John Kasich is, is uh, I think, better on, uh, and more reasonable on that. I think there are some... Um, Carlos Curbelo was one, but he's no longer in. Yeah, look, I I do want to say that if you look back at history, that Republican presidents, Republican members of Congress have generally been very slow to come around. 
But at the end of the day, yeah, they usually have come around. Um, it should not be forgotten that Richard Nixon started the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, I was there at the time, and I can yeah, I can tell you it was like, and he put Bill Ruckel's house in charge, which was a terrific appointment. Bill, mm-hmm. I think, uh, for many years served as a model of what the EPA administrator uh, should be like, far, far different from what we're experiencing today. Um, and if you look at some of the presidents after that, Reagan eventually turned much greener. You know, Thatcher had a big influence on him. She turned green as a conservative. Hmm. Um, and you, you, George H.W. Bush started out. Talked to Bill Riley about that, who served with him. And, you know, they, they eventually turned him around. I think he, they had a big conference in Brazil, as I recall. The Rio Earth Summit, yeah. Bill Riley took... Bush won to go down to that. Yes, yeah. and, 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 and Bush won became uh, much greener. And so I, I, I don't think it's beyond uh, hope that the Republican Party will regain its sanity on this issue. I, I think the Republican Party right now could find itself on issue after issue, so much on the wrong side of history, that the party could be badly, badly damaged. I and mean, we need a right of center party. I'm just not sure right now that's what we're looking at. What's the role of uh, fossil fuel uh, companies in this? There's a lot of um, uh, opposition. You know, they fund a lot of opposition. Very, they make a lot of campaign donations. Very powerful lobby. Some would say the most powerful industry in history. Um, um, you know, are, are they the reason that the Republicans are not moving on this? Well, I think, uh, frankly, yes, they're part of the reason. Um, I come at this as someone who, um, you know, grew up in tobacco country. There's so many parallels between what goes on with tobacco and what, what's going on with the environment now. Mm-hmm. And that is the mainstream um, uh, medical research people all show that it, tobacco will kill you and, and takes you early. And then there were others signed, funded by the tobacco companies who came up with this, you know, this false science uh, and to convince people. And many people in the South, where I came from, didn't believe it. But I'll, I'll tell you something. I wasn't sure. But it was... I lost my father to cancer. The cancer was caused by, by cigarettes. Uh, if we'd had stronger rules, I think he would have survived a lot longer. Uh, and it was always struck me, what we, what we were arguing about then was we needed an insurance policy in case the research finding that tobacco was, could be fatal to you. In case that research were right, we had, we had an answer. And that's the same thing we face in the environment. Okay. The science may not be perfect. It may not be 100% correct. And maybe it's only 95% correct. But whatever the number is, we should have an insurance policy to protect our kids and our grandkids. I mean, it's just, that's such obvious common sense. I, 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 you have to think that the Republican Party takes a contrary view in part because of the money. You're listening to a Climate One conversation with former presidential advisor David Gergen. Coming up, more with David Gergen, plus Inside Climate News reporter Marianne Lavelle on climate politics inside the Beltway. The principle that really motivates the backers of the Green New Deal is considering climate change as an economic policy, not just an environmental policy. And that really isn't all that radical. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're listening to a conversation with political analyst and former presidential advisor David Gergen. Knowing that his wife is a family therapist and his brother is a psychiatrist, 
I asked him to comment on the emotional toil of experiencing, even from a distance, what feels like an unending series of extreme weather. We have a lot of folks in my family who have been um, uh, trying to study, understand emotions and emotional depression, emotional anxiety. And I think they would generally agree um, that our society is going, through, is going through a wrenching period in which there is enormous amount, the turbulence, the, uh, the, the uncertainty of where we are, so many things seem risky, uh, is having a, an impact upon the psychology of the country. Um, we're more, we're, I think we're more depressed. I think we're less willing to try bold things than we should be. I think we're less willing to um, compromise. Uh, we see other people not as, as rivals but as enemies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, I can, you, you and I could both go through the litany uh, that we have. But it's, um, uh, I, I think it's, uh, there's, there is a very, very large question in Western countries now is whether democracy is going to survive the period we're in. Right. And democracy often takes time to make decisions. And some yes. of the the, un, the turbulence that we're seeing in the EU is partly fueled by refugees coming from climate-amplified um, disaster areas. I, I think that's right. And, and again, the Brexit, you know, it's been interesting, striking, of course. There's so many Brits now have uh, a big headline in New York Times very recently. Brits agree on one thing. Democracy doesn't work. It was like... A, a scary headline, but one of the things we've also learned is there is was secret money going in for the pro-Brexit forces. Uh, the New Yorker had a big piece on this. It was a guy who was very close to the Russian oligarchs, had a lot of money, and he put it quietly into dark money, put it quietly into, into opposing Brexit, scared the hell out of a lot of people, and boom, we had Brexit. Um, and, you know, Britain hasn't fully recovered. I don't think it'll recover for a long time. Um, but we do face that problem, I think, in our politics. More generally speaking, we don't know whether we're reading something that's true or not true. And Russia is a petro-state that may benefit from a warmer world. Um, absolutely, absolutely, and 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 they benefit a lot from chaos in the West, uh, and from uh, just general uncertainty. So, I, 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 we we so desperately need leadership on this public leadership on this these climate issues that brings us together and doesn't I hope can do it in such a way as that Democrats and Republicans together can agree. Uh, it's going to be hard. I, I, you know, for all the criticism we have of the U.S. moving too slowly and not being gutsy enough uh, on the carbon tax, it, it's worth remembering that Macron in France, the reason he's had, you know, people in the streets for week after week, and we're at the 19th week now, uh, uh, is because he put in a carbon tax. And there's other tax changes who are happening in France yes. as well. Not yeah. just not fun. wasn't just carbon, but it's a warning sign. Sure. And I, I I remember I was there when 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 Bill Clinton you know proposed a tiny carbon tax. I had Al Gore as vice president. Gore can you know persuade him to do that, and he got beaten back. He had to withdraw it. Looking at the 2020 contenders, Jay Inslee is the climate yep. candidate, governor of Washington. He's near the at the bottom of yep. the polls down there with Howard Schultz. Um, who among the Democratic candidates you think have the right balance and message on climate of what's practical yet aspirational enough to motivate primary voters? Well, I, I'm I'm not sure I see uh, anybody who is uh, carrying the torch the way Inslee is. Uh, and I, I thought Inslee uh, distinguished himself during the travel ban. He stepped forward in a, with he and the, he plus his attorney general. Uh, you know, were were very effective in that. So I've been looking forward. I don't. I wouldn't count him out hmm. uh, as a uh, as a contender because he does have 
a message. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I governors have, typically have, have a better success yeah, that, than U.S. That's senators. Correct. That's correct. <laughs> O'Rourke hasn't had enough of a, of a time, you know, with with substance to really put forward a sound plan. But I look at something like uh, uh, Buttigieg uh, from the mayor mm-hmm. of this this fairly small little city, two hundred two thousand mm-hmm. people. And yet, I think he's got some very sensible. He's striking people as being more, very sensible and thoughtful. And I think he's, I think he's pretty good on the climate issue. Uh, but I don't see anybody, you know, Elizabeth Warren is not crusading on this. Cory Booker's not crusading. That uh, Bernie Sanders is, is for it, but he's not crusading. Um, and uh, I think Joe Biden will be good on if if he gets in. Will be good um, on climate, but I'm not sure he'll crusade on it. I googled CNN and and David Gergen and 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 climate and didn't come up with a um, a lot of lot of hits. Do you think that CNN and you uh, on CNN talk raise the climate issue enough? No, that's a good question. It's a fair question. Uh, look, I think we've been so uh, preoccupied with with the Trump story uh, that we haven't given enough attention. And you know, everybody would like things to calm down so we could we could get back to some of these other issues because it, you know, on the Trump story, it is big and it's very important. But there, frequently, we get caught up in the trivia of that story as well. Right, and some would say that it's not a ratings winner. I mean, Chris Hayes from MSNBC tweeted once that that climate is a ratings loser. It, it, that, it may be a ratings loser. I, I I don't think that ought to be the standard by which we run our society. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of things that are ratings losers that that are important for us to do, and I I think this takes really strong, forceful leadership, um, not only from the presidential candidates, but from increasingly from other companies that are not necessarily fossil fuel companies. Some fossil fuel companies are getting the word; they understand. You know, if you're the CEO, can you imagine what it's going to be like talking to your grandchild or your great-grandchild the way you sat on your tail and didn't know anything about this? It's going to be pretty horrific. Uh, I'll tell you in terms of our university, I have the privilege of teaching here at the Kennedy School at Harvard. We are now getting significant increases in students coming here for climate reasons. I mean, coming to study climate, want to begin, want to get an environmental movement. I run a fellowship. We've raised money for fellowships for students to come and work on the environment. We're getting overwhelmed with good resumes from around the world. So I, I think that they're in, you know, I think women are going to adopt this as part of, the, as part of it. I, it's, it's a little bit like the gay rights movement. When people began to realize everybody has a friend who's gay, Everybody has a friend and yeah. member of that community. Right. Why right. are we holding these people back? Right. I think the, the extent now we're get, we're seeing everybody has knows somebody who's been adversely affected uh, by these uh, wild changes in the weather. Um, everybody who's been flying knows there's a lot more wind up there than there used to be. You bounce around all the time now. You didn't right. used to do that right. for a long time. Um, we're reminded almost daily of the urgency of this issue. Former presidential advisor David Gergen on climate politics and public opinion. You're listening to Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. For an even deeper dive into the national climate politics, we turn to Marianne Lavelle, a reporter for Inside Climate News based in Washington. I began our conversation by asking her about the vote that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell recently held on the Green New Deal. It was really a show vote. I think that's the best way to describe it. And what he wanted to do was to force the Democrats to vote on it and to show that even the Democrats are divided on the Green New Deal. Um, Of course, the Green New Deal was going to lose no matter what, but this would 
put them on the record and put them on the spot. The problem is that he also had to put his own members on the record. And there's a lot of sign that voters, um, you know, they, they may not completely agree with the Green New Deal, but they're not very happy with having politicians who are just not paying attention to climate and just not doing anything. And I think you could see in the uh, speeches on the Senate floor, there was no Republican, uh, uh, virtually no Republican, who really got up there and did a full-throated climate change is not happening or I, you know, mm-hmm. denial of the climate science. Uh, Senator Inhofe was uh, remarkably absent from the discussion. Instead, you heard them uh, talking. Senator Murkowski, for instance, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, her state is big oil state. It also is right in the crosshairs of climate change. And so, she was talking about how uh, we have to do something. I am going to dedicate myself to doing something. It just isn't the Green New Deal. I, I'm not sure that that really is the direction that uh, Mitch McConnell wants to go in, but that is the direction lawmakers seem to be heading in. Now, a lot of the debate about the Green New Deal is that how ambitious it is in scope, whether it's going to attack the flaws of capitalism, job security, income inequality. Uh, but there's no actual bill, right? There's a resolution. There's no actual bill yet, right? Exactly. And I, I do think that the plan was that they would kind of have a resolution declaring this commitment, but really spend the next couple of years coming up with a plan to implement uh, really a 10-year mobilization on climate. That is really what it's about. And maybe uh, some of the more centrist ideas uh, would would really be a part of that. Um, I, I think uh, the principle that really motivates the backers of the Green New Deal is considering climate change as an economic policy, not just an environmental policy. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. really isn't all that radical. As we've written, people have been talking about that since 1992 in the Rio summit. Uh, the, The principles that the United States signed onto when George Bush 41 was president was an environmental and economic framework for addressing climate change. And uh, the only uh, thing is we've committed to that, but yet haven't really implemented it. Do the Republicans have an alternative to the Green New Deal? I saw that uh, Republican Senator Lamar Alexander had a bill for research and development. There's little pieces here, but it seems a little bit of like the healthcare debate where Republicans are against Obamacare, but didn't really have an alternative. I, I think little pieces that describes it so well. I, I think you will see a lot of uh, Republicans, um, again, Lisa Murkowski, Lamar Alexander, talking about things like increasing research and development, just really giving more support 
to uh, renewable energy and also uh, carbon capture technology, which is mm -hmm. just something that we're going to have to work on developing. But what we haven't seen yet is a real framework for tackling climate change uh, from the Republican side. Now, there are some folks who say we are going to see that even uh, while President Trump is still in office, that there is going to be some sort of answer to the Green New Deal uh, from the Republican side. So I guess we'll wait and see if that happens. There are a couple of proposals that are uh, perhaps more focused in scope, and they are economic. The Baker-Schultz plan that you've written about uh, has a carbon price starting at $40 a ton, moving up 2 to 5% annually. And then an alternative bill, the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act, uh, two congressmen from Florida, one Republican, one Democrat, that comes in at $15 a ton and, and raises, uh, increases more uh, quickly, $10 a ton per year. So it starts lower, but it goes higher quickly. Any traction on those uh, between those two what Republican, well, one's bipartisan, one's Republican proposal? Yes. So we are seeing a lot of the supporters of the energy innovation bill, and that's the only one that's been introduced uh, yet. It is promoted by a group called the Citizens Climate Lobby, and uh, mm -hmm. their, their kind of whole reason for being is they believe the climate solution has to be bipartisan. So they have members, citizen volunteers in every single congressional district, and they are going and meeting with um, members of Congress. And they are uh, hearing a positive reaction. I don't know if it's a, enough traction to get it passed. But again, I wouldn't minimize the significance of hearing that Republican members are um, listening and hearing the concern of these folks on climate. Now, the folks who back the Baker-Schultz approach, uh, which include the, the biggest oil companies, as well as, right. as uh, environmental groups, it's, it's kind of a coalition. They believe that they are going to see that sort of plan introduced by a Republican in the Senate before the end of this year, um, maybe this summer. I think that that would be a significant moment. Not to say that we're at the place where that kind of legislation could pass, but it becomes part of the discussion. This is, this is the thing that we have tried to uh, get across in our coverage, that for so many years, the discussion was stuck on is climate change happening or not? And that is not going to be a productive discussion. But a debate on, you know, which approach would be better, Baker Schultz or the Energy Innovation Act, that actually is a discussion that could become productive because it, and throw Green New Deal in there as well. Um, you can see how a compromise could develop. And a debate on solutions is a moment that 
you know, we have to take note of, and we haven't been in that position before. Never before has Congress, you know, had different climate solutions, people buzzing about them. And uh, that's an important moment in this long march toward doing something on climate. Almost exactly 10 years ago, there was a you know, a cap and trade bill uh, moved through the House. It was passed uh, by a few vote margin. There was industry support then, oil companies, auto companies, manufacturing companies. Uh, where is industry this time? You mentioned the oil industry supporting the Baker-Schultz plan. Are they really uh, putting muscle into it, or are they just kind of putting their name on it and tossing a nickel into the coffers? Yes, the oil industry is spending uh, multi-million dollars on lobbying, but you only have to see that that's a small fraction of the cash that they have on hand, and that they're still investing in in fossil fuels and the fossil fuel infrastructure and expansion mm -hmm. of their industry. So in that sense, it isn't as serious as it needs to be. Because, first of all, they're going to have to address climate change. They cannot escape this issue. And for them, a carbon tax is a far more predictable way of doing it. And they can also include in a carbon tax proposal a lot of things that they would like to see, including, you know, number one, getting rid of other federal regulations. Number two, getting shielded from these climate lawsuits that are mm -hmm. emerging all around the country. They have not um, made much of a dent in the oil industry yet, but they could. The, um, the peril is there, and um, they don't want to be dealing with the uncertainty of litigation. So that's another thing they would like to see. Which is, there, there's a parallel with that with the, the tobacco companies in the 1960s. They agreed to put the Surgeon General's warning on a pack of cigarettes. Uh, this causes cancer, and that basically bought them a few decades of, uh, of relief until the, the 90s when there was another deal made. So um, that's interesting. The sort of the indemnification is a key part of uh, perhaps a carbon tax or carbon, carbon price deal. Right. Um, it, it really bought the tobacco industry a generation of, uh, mm -hmm. of continuing to do business as they wanted to. And I, I'm not sure on climate change we have another generation to continue business as usual. And this is something that lawmakers are going to have to look at very seriously because these Green New Dealers are right. We can't be incremental. We have to, at this point, talk about something that is truly a mobilization, that truly is transformational. Oh, I, I know I've been changed. Oh, I, I know I've been changed. Inside Climate News reporter Marianne Lavelle on Washington climate politics. This is Climate One. Coming up, Republican pollster Lori Weigel on how GOP voters are often out of step these days with their party's national leadership. I 
think there's huge openings today that we haven't seen in a long time for Republicans to actually step forward, put something in place that uh, would be widely embraced by their core voters. That's up next when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate is often framed as a liberal or left of center issue, but Republican pollster Lori Weigel finds the views of some GOP voters at odds with the environmental policies of the current administration, particularly in the West. I began our conversation by asking her what Americans think about the administration's policy of energy dominance. Well, there's some conflicts there. Certainly, voters want to see America be energy independent. They don't like this idea of having to rely on other nations for energy. And so Mm -hmm. um, they are still thinking about that and wary about that. So I think some of the language about energy dominance comes from that and does strike a chord with more conservative voters. That said, when it comes to public lands and the use of public lands, overwhelmingly we have seen both nationally and with voters in the West that they want those public lands to be managed in a way that conserves them for wildlife habitat, as places for outdoor recreation, and just for their natural beauty and the value they have uh, as natural areas, more so than as resources uh, for extraction. Does that hold in, in uh, you know extraction states, Colorado, Utah, big uh, coal state, does that also hold in those areas? Even in Wyoming, which is uh, usually sort of atypical from the rest of the West because of the emphasis of the uh, and reliance on energy for their economy and their budget, we still see that when it comes to national public lands that they want the emphasis to be on conservation. It's certainly more divided there than in other states, but overwhelmingly Western voters tell us that that they want the emphasis to be on conservation rather than energy production in those areas. So that reminds me of things like removing national monument protections in Utah, Bears Ears, that sort of thing. Uh, A lot of... uh, Uh, public opposition. So you're saying that what the administration is doing is going against popular opinion in the areas that it's doing it. Well, I think there's a few factors affecting uh, views of the administration's policies here. You know, a large part of it is that people simply don't think of these as places that where the priority ought to be on energy. Um, We've seen in the past in doing work for Colorado College among eight Western states that uh, voters really don't even recognize that resource extraction is taking place on many national public lands. And so Mm. they start from their point of view and and their interaction with public lands is often more in terms of visiting national parks with their family or enjoying a hike or mountain bike. And uh, that, that familiarity with any sort of resource extraction is really limited. So I think what we see is that their starting point is how does this affect me? And for the most part, the vast majority of Western voters say, you know, we we need to make sure that we protect these places for all Americans, um, that it shouldn't be something where economic value or resource extraction is taking priority over um, the the uses that we're most familiar with. 
You also do polling on water uh, and big uh, concerns about drought in the Colorado River Basin. There's been a deal recently. Um, what are the voters that you poll think about water? Is it becoming less predictable, uh, particularly in the Rocky Mountain West? Well, we're seeing that the vast majority of voters are telling us, two-thirds are telling us that they're seeing uh, the rate of rainfall and water just being way less predictable than it has been in the past. A lot of that goes back to views of climate change. Overwhelmingly, we're seeing an increase in concern about climate change and Westerners telling us that this is a serious problem that needs to be addressed. Uh, it's not just true in the West, really. It's, it's across the entire country where we're seeing a significant uptick, even in just the last couple of years, uh, but very much so over the last 20 years, where suddenly we have a, a recognition that climate change is happening, that it's a serious problem, and immediate action is necessary. What kind of uh, partisan split do you see there with Democrats being more inclined to accept climate change? The Republicans, those numbers have typically been much smaller uh, about accepting climate change or thinking it's a concern in their lifetime. But how is the Republican, how have the Republican numbers changed? Well, it's, it's interesting. There was national polling that was done by NBC News Wall Street Journal at the end of last year. And when you look at those who are saying that climate change is a serious problem and immediate action is necessary, um, Democrats who held that view has moved up by 42 points over the last decade. Um, it's now at 71% of Democrats saying that immediate action is necessary. It's only 15% of Republicans. In fact, those numbers haven't wow. moved since 1999. So in almost 20 years, we've seen very little movement. But I will say this, that's when you talk about immediate action. If you broaden your language and talk about, should we be transitioning to cleaner energy? Should we be taking some sorts of actions? Then you get far more Republicans, especially Republican women, especially younger Republicans who say, yes, yes, we ought to be doing something. They may not know exactly what that should be. Um, and they often balk at doom and gloom language. But when we offer practical solutions, they grab onto those and they say, yeah, we ought to be doing that. Do you ever test people's willingness to pay a little more for cleaner energy, cleaner cars, that sort of thing? Yeah, when, it, when we talk about clean energy, when we talk about solar and wind and being more energy efficient, honestly, we see very little partisan distinction on those things. People see them mm. as practical. Uh, they recognize that it's going to save them money in the long term. Uh, they recognize the clean air benefits. And so we see very little partisan divide on, on those policies. And in fact, when it comes to paying a little bit more, usually the amounts that we're actually talking about that utilities might put in place or the, the implications for real life policies are so minimal that people are shocked. It's just that Republicans tend to overestimate how much those actually might cost them. Um, and so we'll see significant willingness to pay even very significant amounts up to $100 a year and things like that when oftentimes we're talking about just, you know, a couple bucks a month, uh, some of the implications of putting in place energy efficiency plans and things like that. Your uh, previous firm did polling for a number of Republicans, and if I recall correctly, that included 
uh, John McCain. You know, are these poll numbers reaching, are they influencing the, um, the voting patterns or priorities of uh, elected officials that are your clients? I think what we're starting to see is just even in the last couple of years, um, you know, things like catastrophic wildfires, things like flooding, um, you know, in, in Florida, that there's just a recognition that this is starting to affect everyday life. And that has some implications. While things like the New Green Deal, you know, really just focus on AOC and, you know, may not be helpful in that political partisan context, I think what it shows is that uh, there's room for Republicans to have plans too. And when we've tested those, people overwhelmingly embrace those, especially those voters that are so critical for. Um, Republican candidates to get reelected, those Republican women, those um, conservative independents even are saying, yeah, we like it when people talk about practical solutions. They think of clean energy as a practical solution. They don't respond well to uh, calls about doom and gloom and things that they feel like are, are you know, too hysterical, things like saying, oh, we only have a 10-year window in which to act. They really push back on that. Um, But I think there's huge openings today that we haven't seen in a long time for Republicans to actually step forward, put something in place that uh, would be widely embraced by their core voters. Well, often that's happened. Carlos Curbelo, who represented the southern tip of Florida, had a had a carbon plan, a carbon pricing plan. There's some of that's happening. Uh, is there? Have you tested, you know, carbon tax, carbon fee? Is there support for that kind of what every economist says? That's a practical solution. I think the problem becomes when you say the word tax, you get a partisan <laughs> reaction. And so no yeah, matter sure. what you're doing, it, it could be a tax on anything. It could, it could be a tax to pass out free lollipops to everyone. Or, you yeah. know, I mean, No one likes it, any kind of no tax. No one likes yeah. a tax, so, especially those conservative voters. And if there's one thing that defines our partisan divide today, it is a reaction to that three-letter word um, because it really really provokes a very partisan response. And it's something that you can, you know, that that people just worry it's going to get out of hand. Where will the money go? We're seeing skepticism about government at, you know, highest levels since I entered this business. Um, And even since George Gallup started doing some of his polling. (laughs) So, you know, we just see that that skepticism about where those funds would actually go starts to erode people's confidence in, in those type of schemes. You mentioned the, the Green New Deal, which gets lots of uh, attention. And I think there's been clearly some people, uh, even moderate Democrats, are concerned that it goes too far or they're afraid it's going to engender too much uh, too much opposition, too ambitious, all, all those sorts of things, which AOC, of course, um refutes, but is there an indication that that appeals to young Republicans, the ambition, the aspiration of a Green New Deal? I think everyone is sort of gets excited when you're talking about innovative solutions, when you're talking about ways to use technology to create solutions. But where Republican voters and conservative voters tend to pull back is they don't want to see it just be restrictions and regulation. Um, They want to allow for innovation that is not just led by the government and funded by the government, but that is sort of a bottom-up approach uh, to this entire challenge. 
and again, we've been talking to Republican women throughout the country, they do want to see both parties working together to address this problem and not have it just be pigeonholed as that's too leftist, that's do nothing. They want to see both parties come together and act. You've been doing some qualitative research with Republican voters. What have you found? I mean, that's one of the biggest things and one of the aha moments is that you know, I mean, we were still sort of in this debate over, is it real? Is it man-made versus natural? And, you know, a lot of people just get stuck in that in that dialogue mm-hmm. and never move past that. But once you actually present uh, potential solutions, people get far more excited about that. They just don't want to hear bickering. Um, and they don't want to get into this place, you know, they'll talk about it as a hot button issue. Um, something that uh, people get too animated about and get too negative about. And so they're scared to say anything. They're scared to offer their opinions a lot of the times because they feel like they get attacked over that. Um, And, you know, especially with uh, conservative women, they don't want to get into debates about is this fact or fiction or what's going on here. Um, They just want someone reliable, someone neutral, they respect NASA, they respect NOAA, they respect lots of our uh, institutions that have great information on their websites. And when you point them in those directions, they embrace it. Um, But they just don't want to get in that bickering dialogue. And they want to move past that and think about, you know, much more practical ways that this could actually, that we could get something done. What do people want Congress to do? Uh, well, they want Congress to stop the partisanship and work together, but that's true on almost any issue. So that's not limited to climate change or to energy policy. I think what we see time and again is that um, it's not just Congress. They're willing to accept things at the local level. They're willing to you know, embrace actions at the state. They do think of energy as more of a national issue. But when you talk about policies that are happening at the state, oftentimes they may not be aware of them, but they'll be pleasantly surprised by them. And so it's not just Congress that they're looking towards. In fact, Congress is, has ratings that are you know, pretty abysmal right now. Um, <laughs> they'd like to see action even in, in their local communities. And sometimes when we test things like you know, making government buildings more energy efficient at the local level, that's one of the things people most widely embrace. Republican pollster Lori Weigel talking about the changing views of GOP voters on energy and climate. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Please help us get people to talk more about climate by giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the program. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Dr. Gloria Duffy is our CEO. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.